Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You're about to hear a spoiler-free discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. I'm your host, Rob Stinnett, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up? What's up, man? We are back and we are doing a little bit of a spoiler free discussion about Killers of the Flower Moon today. And then we're going to jump into spoilers. So it's not completely spoiler free, but we're going to we're going to we're going to start off that way. Yeah, I thought I'd perk your ears up by saying spoiler free at first, because (laughs) I'm very aware that not everyone will have seen this movie when the podcast drops. And so the copy that you see and the intro that you hear is like, hey, even if you haven't seen this movie, Take a little bit of time, listen to this opening part, and then go check out the movie and you can come back for the spoiler section in the second half of the podcast. So some a little bit different, but um, I really want to talk about and either convince people to or maybe not to see this movie, Andrew. And we have not talked about it <laughs> at all. We haven't. And so I'm I don't know what you thought about this movie at all. Yeah. You may have hated this movie for all I know, because you put this movie on our schedule before you saw it, I think. Yeah, I purely it was Martin Scorsese. Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro. And as like, as film guys, as people who love the craft, like we have to talk about this, whether it's a triumph or a disaster. So I guess just straight up, Andrew, to start with, what did you think of this movie? What did I think of this movie? Um, I thought that this movie was surprisingly engaging for being three and a half hours. Yeah. It is the longest movie I have seen in recent memory. I, I mean, I can't think of a movie that I have seen maybe in my lifetime that was longer than this. Um, maybe the extended edition of Return of the King. Um, but this is a very, very long movie, hearkening back to like the early eras of movies like the 19, you know, 40s and 50s when they were making movies like The Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur and Gone with the Wind that were regularly this long. Yeah, and the conversation about this movie has been how long it is, although I think that's the 10th most interesting thing about it. But I know for me, we were literally supposed to record last week. I haven't even told you this, but mm-hmm. I wasn't able to see it. I could never find a window to see it until last yeah. night. So I finally was able to see. Yeah, literally last night was when I saw it. I was going to see it over Thanksgiving break. And then on bottom line, I couldn't find a three and a half hour window, which is actually four hours or five hours. Once you're driving, seeing previews, all that sort of stuff. I'm like, this is going to take a full day to like see this movie. Right. So I think the headline is if you have a solid day to go watch a movie, this is probably a really good choice. Um, I think I went and saw like a 630 showing. Like 6.30 in the evening, that's a respectable time to go see a movie. And I didn't get home until like 11. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I mean, that like you said, it's not the most interesting thing about this movie. But I also think like, so there's a, a, a couple things. My, I'd say my overall takeaway from this movie is for being a three and a half hour movie called Killers of the Flower Moon about murder in a Native American community in the, like, what is it, 1920s? 1920s, yeah. 1920s. It is a surprisingly quiet movie. Yes. <laughs> like, um, also directed by Martin Scorsese, right? The, the, it, it, I had a little bit of an expectation of being sort of like Martin Scorsese kind of cowboys and Indians murder action, bloody murder movie, uh, you know, maybe old school organized crime kind of thing. There is some organized crime in this, but it is a surprisingly quiet movie um, at three and a half hours. But I was engaged the entire time, despite those two things that I think should have made me bored of it being sort of quiet and just kind of like a like a like a drama. Right. Um, And it being a little bit longer, I expected to be more like I was surprised at how engaged I was the entire time considering those two things. So that surprised me and really spoke to the craft that was at work in the acting and directing. Yeah, you kind of think it's going to be like Goodfellas. You think it's going to be like Casino, Wolf of Wall Street, these sort of like fast paced, fast moving sort of things. Um, But this is a movie made by an 80 year old man. Now, he was. (laughs) You know, a 70 year old man or right around his 70s when he made Wolf of Wall Street, which is one of the most frenetic paced movies I've seen in the last 30 years. Like it's go, 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 go. go. It's it's like a movie that feels just like cocaine hitting your veins. Like 
I've never done cocaine. I don't know, but I'm, I just feel like this is the cinematic version of that, of just like stimulus, stimulus, stimulus. And that's what Martin Scor- Scorsese is known for. The Departed. I mean, I could just list his IMDb mm. of these classic films that are just yeah. very frenetically paced. Um, and this movie paces well, but it is not yeah. action, action, action. It is more quiet. It's more somber. It's more thoughtful. Um, and I think part of it is because of the reverence of the subject matter that he has yeah. of the, is why he took that approach with this movie. I think that's probably true. Something that I found interesting about this movie, and this I think falls pretty squarely into the spoiler free zone is this movie reminded me much more of a Coen brothers movie than a Scorsese movie. Um, the, the general atmospheric feel of this movie is like small town, very normal people, um, all kind of going about a moment in time and you kind of experiencing the consequences of that. Um, some of the most interesting characters in this movie, I think are the people that just feel like these weird, like, um, uh, real small town People in our Fargo episode, we talked about how like Fargo is a character and all of these little like one off one scene characters throughout that movie are like so lived in and so like meaty like those characters. That's how I felt about watching uh, Killers of the Flower Moon is these people that are living in this city that aren't Robert De Niro or Leonardo DiCaprio or these big stars that are in the movie. Um, were some of the most interesting people to watch and these character actors that I've never seen before in my life just owning these really amazing Moments for people who have seen the movie, I think uh, the guy playing John Ramsey, I think his name is, who's just this kind of character that keeps hopping in and out, is one of the most engaging characters, I think, in the movie. And he's just this kind of offshoot character. So it felt not what I was expecting when it comes to like, I was expecting to jump in here and talk about Scorsese. And it, it isn't kind of his what I would expect from his sort of like normal fare. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think there's so many great performances in it. And it, if Again, like a Coen Brothers wor- film, it does feel like a lived-in world. Like, one thing I loved, yeah. if, if I'm giving my pitch of, like, why to see it, the production design is just so fun and breathtaking, and um, it doesn't feel CGI'd. It feels like you're going into old-fashioned billiards halls with a barber shop. You're going into homes that just feel like, okay, this is a home in the 1920s. You're in a town square. Right. So you just feel... I, I think even you mentioning these old epics, I think Scorsese very much had that on his mind of like, mm-hmm. this is Ben-Hur, this is Spartacus, this is old and grandiose and old Hollywood and making movie making that sort of way. Like I didn't, yeah. I don't know if anything was CGI'd in this movie. This is just kind of classic cinema filmmaking is right. what it felt like to me. Um, there was, a, and, there was a moment where like a old school steam engine was like pulling into frame in like this wide shot of a town. And I was like, where do you find a steam engine in 2022? Um, And how do you get it on a railroad track? I was like thinking about all of this stuff and I was like, I'm sure you could do it. But I was like, I wonder if that is CGI. (laughs) It didn't look CGI at all, but I was like a little bit curious. Like is, is, is that easier just to create out of thin air this in this day and age than to go find a turn of the century steam engine and put it on a track? Well, no question it's easier to do, but this is a $200 million movie. And I think it's that sort of thing of like, no, let's make a steam engine from scratch, you know, like, yeah. and I don't know <laughs> they, what I'll say is shot. everything felt real, you know, it just it felt did. real. It felt organic and in a world of CGI stuff. And I'm not, you know, anti that, but I was just, it was so fresh and so different. And for me, yeah. it's like, that's part of the reason why to see this film. Um, the performances are great. I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm still wrestling with what this film is and what this film means, but I right. definitely think it's one of Scorsese's better films, and I definitely think it's going to be nominated for Best Picture. And so if you love movies, sure. like, this is worth seeing. Like, put it on your list. Go go see it. Go check it out. Absolutely. So if, if you gave the score, like, like a 1 out of 10, um, or if you were to score this movie, um, what, would, what would you give it? I love that question. Um, I'm a constant like score ranker. I think I'd give it like a eight or eight point five out of ten for me. Oh, wow. I think okay. I think it was really really strong. I I think when I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is a good movie. It's like a seven, 
And then yeah. as it ended, as I drove home, as I was thinking <laughs> about this episode, I just keep wrestling with what all it's saying, what all it means. And ultimately, it gets a higher ranking for me because there are so few films made about the Native American experience um, that are good and quality and worth done. Now, this is a film from a white man, you know, white man's perspective, that sort of stuff. It's not from the Osage perspective very much so. Although he partnered with the Osage uh, Indians, he shot it all there. Like, it's very sympathetic, but it's still, like, not their perspective. But at the same time, it's one of our best or maybe our best living filmmaker talking about America's original sin. And to me, it's just like that, like, and it's done really, really well. And so for all those things, that gives me a high rating. Yeah, I think all of that is true. That's that's really good. I feel like for me, it's probably and I think this is just a taste thing for me. Um, I think I'd probably give it like a gentleman seven. Um, I think it's definitely worth seeing if you love movies, if you're the kind of person that watches the Oscars, like, you know, that's like part of your yearly rhythm, you know, that you want to watch Oscar movies and like you're a movie person. Um, this, like, you have to see this movie, um, for sort of the casual movie viewer, I would still recommend it. It's obviously a big, a big movie to bite off, especially to see it in theaters, but it's so well done and it's so different from Anything that's really being made right now, um, it doesn't feel like uh, modern Hollywood. It feels a little, yeah, like like you were saying, it feels a little bit like old old Hollywood, but it, not in a way that like you you're just being drugged through some long epic where you're checking your watch. Like you're in this world for an afternoon, and that world is. Um, uncomfortable to be in at times um there's a lot of really interesting characters a lot of characters uh that kind of come in and out and the the i mean it's it's a really it's really thought-provoking i don't know like we're trying to stay away from like spoiler territory right now so i i am uh hesitant to, t to talk about like of these people leonardo dicaprio robert de niro like these these names in the movie like who is a good guy and who isn't uh, but the idea of morality and how do we interact with people and our prejudice and our motives and what like how do we manipulate one another and like the idea of human decency or I mean decency is not even a strong enough word, but it, it really is putting a magnifying glass on the the sort of the soul of humanity and why we do terrible things to each other. Um, maybe not even why, but just that we do. And this is what it looks like. Um, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's uncomfortable for a lot of it because yeah. of the perspective that they put you in, but not in a way that I would discourage anyone from being, or not even a way that's even that like, like bad. It's, it's like, it's more, more thought provoking than anything else. It's not viscerally uncomfortable, really. Right. It's not. Zodiac no. or Silence of the Lambs or something. No, 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 no. It's, it's just nothing like that. It's it's thematically uncomfortable. And yes. It's, it's dark and it's shocking of like how abusive and dark um, these people were to this to the Osage Indians. Um, I guess one but, other thing I'd say about it is. Yeah. One thing that I really ranked it high was the ending. I won't tell you what the ending is. Sure. But I loved the ending. And I was oh, yeah. like kind of blown away by it. And I think it was very brave and ambitious. And yeah. what, what did you think of the ending without giving any spoilers? There's, away? there's no way to talk about the ending without going into spoiler territory. But it, <laughs> my it is my most meaningful scene. I walked into the theater being like, that's dibs on my most meaningful scene. Okay. For, like far and away. <laughs> um, so it's it's um, again, it it turns to me, it turns the magnifying glass on the viewer. Um, watching that final scene, it, it I mean, yeah, I, I, I think I used the wrong word when I said uncomfortable uh, like 30 seconds ago, because I think there's a lot of movies where we deal with sort of America's original sin of treating all kinds of minority groups badly. Um, and there's movies like uh, 12 Years a Slave that put you through horrific scenes and you're kind of forced to sit in a lot of horrific scenes. There aren't that many horrific scenes in this movie, which being Scorsese, I expected there to be. I expected there to be several departed moments where, you know, right. people got their brains blown out. 
And that honestly, like, again, a little bit of a spoiler here, but that you we, you don't really that's not how this movie is made. It's the themes of how people what people's hearts are doing, how people rationalize their decisions, the conversations that they have, how they rationalize good and evil. And then the effect that that has on people over like a 10 year period. Um, it's 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 this kind of quiet, emotional ride of watching, you know, people you know, uh, abuse one another emotionally and physically. Like it's, it's, it's very, but and that's not even doing it justice. It's very, very nuanced, uh, and very good. Yeah. I, I just think for me, endings matter so much. Um, yeah. and if you can do something that like surprises me and shocks me, that's almost always going to give me a much higher score. And I felt like this ending was so well done. It was so earned one by the film and two by the filmmaker um, yeah. that it gave me chills and um, we'll, we'll talk into it, but those are kind of some big ideas for you to consider going into the movie. And so let's go into spoiler zone now. Let's just, um, okay. Uh, so we don't have to dance around it. We'll go into full spoiler zone. So if you haven't listened or if you haven't seen the movie, go check it out, come back. If you have seen the movie, let's talk about some categories. And so Maybe we can quickly do the opening question because I think it's interesting to talk about, which is... Okay, so so now that we're into the spoiler zone, we're going to do the opening question that has no spoilers whatsoever, just to be clear. I know. I just didn't want us to, like, feel guard ourselves because I think this question is so worth talking about. So here's yeah, something here that I think, think about all the time, Andrew, as a philosopher, as a theologian, as a moviegoer. Um, but I think Scorsese's movies are deeply concerned about the state of our soul. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering about you, Andrew Harmon, if you had to answer one way or the other, would you okay. say people are innately good or evil? Like where, so, where do you think in human nature we are? Yeah. So I have an answer for this. Um, but I'm, before I, I say my answer, your opening questions are often designed for us to debate. So I'm afraid of like picking my answer here. Cause I'm going to then pigeonhole you into having the other opinion. And I don't, I don't want to do that to you. Cause this seems like an important question for you to go on the record about. Uh, but I'm going to answer it. And that is that, um, I think I, I honestly think that people are innately pretty bad. I think people are bad people. Like, I think most people are like, it's so much easier to be evil than to not. I think it's hard to be good. Um, And I think that all by itself, we can kind of dive into that. But I think the fact that it is easier to be evil than not um, kind of says something. So I've always, you know, I'm going to get into theology here a little bit. And I've been taught of like, the depravity of man and that man is like kind of innately evil and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I always rejected it. Cause I'm like, if people are evil, why would mm-hmm. someone help someone on the side of the road? Why do we give money towards Santa Claus when he's jingling, you know, Christmas bells yeah. on the street? And it's like, okay, I'm going to give money towards that. Like what is in it for us? If we're innately evil, like why would we even do that? And so I'm like, I don't think it's true. I think we're innately good, but evil creeps in. I no longer, this is a cheat, but I've thought about this a lot and this movie really clarified Mm. it to me. I think whenever I heard innately evil, what I always thought was evil as in the Zodiac. I thought of evil as in Hitler, as in just this kind of monstrous thing that comes inside of us. And I'm like, I don't believe that's what people are. What I believe we are is innately selfish. We are thinking about our own self good. And that's what is deep inside of us and ultimately with your life what you have to decide to do is what to do with that selfishness do you realize there's something beyond your selfishness and love for other people or do you realize nope i'm just going to live with my own selfishness and i'm going to maximize it and this is the way it is and whatever life philosophy you put on top of your selfishness is where your life is going to turn out and i think that's what this movie is about is different degrees of selflessness and selfishness and it really like made me rethink the innate human nature watching this movie hmm that's really interesting that like i mean to me yes i mean you you spend the whole time watching this movie thinking about human nature and why we do the things that we do or why other people choose to do the things that, that they do 
Um, yeah, I mean, to me, to me, that 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 idea of selfishness is is to me the core of why I think people are innately bad um, <laughs> uh, is, is because I think most of the time it, it is it is very difficult, I think, to do an a completely non self-serving act, a completely selfless act, um, even even the like. Like the putting the money in the bucket where Santa Claus is ringing the bell, like there's something enjoyable about that. Correct. Like there is right. There, there's something personally gratifying about doing that. Even if I don't know where the money is going, the fact that I'm like putting money in a red bucket while a man, the, the, the action of it is somehow innately enjoyable. And that's why it's set up that way. It's because it attracts people to do it. Um, And so I, I think like... We have to, it seems like we have to, we know it is better to be selfless than selfish. Like we know that intellectually. And I think we put up a lot of self manipulations or cultural manipulations in order to get people to behave good. Um, but without that, like I think our natural bent is to be self-serving and we have to do a lot of work to not do that. Um, and uh, this, this, movie is, is seems pretty clear about that i mean i would say i don't know that it matters what you and i think about humanity but i'll tell you i'm pretty sure martin scorsese thinks that people are bad well let's unpack it um let's start with um who is the most meaningful character okay um so uh i'm gonna start off this answer with who i think is not the most meaningful character Okay. And that is Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. Um, which kind of blows my mind. Um, he is far and away the protagonist of the film. It you see everything through his perspective. Um, but as far as the characters that are like carrying the like moral ethos of this film, Leonardo DiCaprio is kind of stuck in the middle between the good angel and bad angel. And the bad angel is Robert De Niro, who gives a stunning performance, and then um, Lily Gladstone, who plays uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's wife, who I think gives an Oscar-winning performance as well, and I've never even heard of her before. Um, I wait, think wait, wait. Let, let's stop on. Let's stop on her for. Is she your most meaningful character? Or are you um, kind of saying both? It's either her or Robert De Niro. The the thing that that shocks me is that Leonardo DiCaprio is not even in the running for me. It's either Robert De Niro or. Lily Gladstone, um, who have character names, uh, of which I'm not remembering. <laughs> uh, she is Molly um, Burkhart. Molly, that's right. Molly and Burkhart he, and King William somebody. Hale. He's William yes. Hill, but he has like a, he's essentially like the mayor or the the king or, you know, kind of the, but, but it is, it is an angel he's, and devil story for sure. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, she's my most meaningful character. Okay. And yeah, I was let's just, talk about her then. I was just stunned with her on screen with Robert De Niro, who's maybe the best actor of the last 50 years. Leonardo DiCaprio is, you know, the last best actor of the 21st century, possibly just picks great performance after great performance to be in. And she was I, a movie star. I heard described one time as like, who can you just not take your eyes off of? And right. every time she was on frame, every time she was on screen, even when it was just a cutaway of her staring and not even saying a single line, Right. I knew what she was thinking. I knew what she was feeling. And I was like, this movie does not work without her. What no. a performance. Seriously, it is. And when I, when I said earlier that this movie is a quiet movie, she is the definition of a quiet performance that is somehow riveting. Like to me, she is the encapsulation of what this movie is. It like her performance is so with except when she's sick towards the end and maybe a few key scenes where she like breaks down and freaks out. This is not a like self-serving performance with some big epic monologue or some big rant or some huge crying scene. Like when she, I hope, you know, inevitably gets nominated for a best supporting actress award. She will. I don't know. She will. I don't know what clip they're going to play at the Oscars because there isn't anything in this movie that's like, that's her moment. Right. Like she doesn't have it. She's just it's this in May, amazing, enthralling heartbreaking, quiet performance for three and a half hours that you are completely connected to her and want her to win so badly. Like she becomes the heart of this film, even though she is not the protagonist. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to skip ahead to my most meaningful scene. And Do and because I'm going to talk about both her, because I, I, I'm going to cheat. I have two most meaningful scenes. <laughs> I love um, how like we are, we, we have rules for this podcast, but we're always like, all right, I'm going to cheat in the podcast that I've created and set up the rules for. <laughs> I just have to do it for the for the sake of good conversation because okay. So my two most meaningful scenes, the first scene is with Molly and Ernest and it's one of their very first dates or that sort of thing and they're sitting down at a table and it's kind of mm. the production still that's been used for the whole thing and it's mm-hmm. raining outside and he goes to shut the window and she says stop. Like it's raining literally in the house and he wants to shut the window but she won't let him. She just lets right. the rain come in and then He's about to pour whiskey. They're going to have some whiskey like, hey, let's drink. And he's about to pour it. And then she's like, stop, don't don't pour it. And then he's like, well, the ranger is nice and is talking. She's like, stop. No, we just sit here and we listen. And the way that she is in control and inviting him to get into tune with nature, with the beauty of what's happening outside, with a whole different perspective and way of life. I just brought in so much subtext as a viewer of that scene of like what she was doing and what she was telling him to do, even though she never explains it. But it was very clearly from that, that scene on that, like, no, she's different. She's from a different culture. She's from a different background, different way of life. And not even the other side of the tracks, but like another world where Leo yeah. can't possibly wrap his head around the way that she's thinking. And it is such a simple, powerful scene um, I've never seen anything quite like it. And I just love to love that scene. And it's 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 the moment that he really falls in love with her. There's so many yeah. competing motivations. And I think this movie is really controlled in the fact that they they don't spell out like people why they're making certain choices. And they cover enough ground that oftentimes you don't see people making a decision. You just see that the decision was made. Right. Like um, you don't see him propose or them really courting. You see that scene and then you see the scene of them getting married, right? Like you don't see this moment where she commits to him, right? These moments of decision are often not presented on screen. Um, but there is the, a the moment where of, they make out in a like 1920s car, which I thought was like a true. shout out to Titanic. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, <laughs> it's Leo back in the steamy car with a girl. I did not think of that, that at all. That's that's only I feel like that's something only you would think of. <laughs> um, you're like, look, 30 years later. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, what, what, what was I saying before you talked about making out in a 1920s roadster? Um, they just oh, didn't just, show like, people, a lot of their courting. Yeah. Well, and, and, and so the idea of like, I, I think that scene is when you see him objectively, legitimately fall in love with her. Before we, we see, um, you know, King trying to, like, convince him to, like, get with her for the wrong reasons. And then you see that, you know, he's like, she's rich. And so he likes driving her around. You see all the bad reasons for them to be together, which play hugely into the rest of the movie. But that's kind of the one m- moment to me where their performance together, I was able to be like, no, he does care about this person. He's not just... He's he he is clearly torn and is somewhere in the middle because of this moment. Right. The classic like trope is like, oh, it's the gold digger who's kind of trying to get in and get the money and that sort of thing. And, the, you know, the Osage Indians were the richest per capita of um, people. And so it was like but that was not what that scene was so important because he was not with her for the money. At least it really made a strong argument that there was so much more to it than that. And that scene, I think, back to my human nature question, like that scene is about his salvation. That scene is about like, you can fall in love with this woman for who she is and just love her and have a great life. And she can give so much to you if you will deny your selfishness and truly like love and serve this woman. And I think there's a big part of him that like wants that and cares about her and loves her. And and it's not like, again, I don't, Maybe this is just Rob the Optimist, but I think the the film is saying, no, there is real love here. There's a real relationship and there's depth and soul and meaning to it. And even without the money, he sees who she is and loves her. Um, yeah. At least there's that side of it. There, that side right. of it is real. It exists. And I think that goes into one of the things that makes this movie so good is that everything feels, at least with. Leo's character, it is incredibly nuanced, 
um, in in why he's making decisions. And they often don't tell you why he makes certain decisions at what time. What is what is behind it? Like um, most movies would have the the moment where he he goes like. I love her so much, I'm going to reject all these other things. And he plays the whole movie, basically not rejecting anything. He he just keeps saying yes to all the things, basically, and riding the fence the whole time. And you see those motivations, good and bad, love and greed and wanting a place of belonging. And, you know, uh, all of those things uh, at play constantly. And they none of them ever seem to win out for very long, which feels very, again, very real. That's how real life is. That's how evil constantly stays with us because it's not like we have a moment of evil it's like it's sitting there all the time right alongside all of our good loving decisions well and so that takes me to my other most meaningful scene which is so bizarre it's in the messianic hall and he goes in this hall that's like a chessboard, oh. and then yeah. he goes and robert de niro actually has him put you don't even know what's happening but he takes this book off the table puts his hand on the table and there's a scene where he is publicly spanked or privately spanked, I guess, yeah. by Robert De Niro's character. And I've I've seen thousands of movies. I was like, I don't think I've ever seen someone spanked. At least like <laughs> there was nothing funny. There was nothing sexy. It was just real spanking that was happening. And it was so humiliating and demoralizing. And you said, we don't know why he's making all of his decisions. And what I got out of that was like, it was not greed of the reason he was making all these decisions, it was fear of humiliation. And he was kind of being controlled by fear, which let his selfishness kind of be taken over and ruined his life and ruined the life of everyone around him. Yeah. I mean, fear, I think is an added element to it that comes through in that scene, but he starts the movie by saying like, I like money. I know. And I like women. I like money. I like women. Right. Like he's he's very open in the beginning of the movie about the fact that he is like not a heroic kind of dude. And there's nothing he does throughout the movie that really shifts that opinion. Uh, Like he doesn't really change. And so, yeah, fear enters the game with Robert De Niro's character. And you can see he is one. He wants, I think, a place of belonging. He's come from somewhere else. He's fought in the war. He's trying to reestablish like a community or family or something. He's not particularly close to Robert De Niro at the beginning of the movie. But, you know, it's it's uh, it reminded me a little bit of Goodfellas in the sense of like, I want to be a part of this family. Right. And so I've got to do things to show my loyalty, um, which, again, is a motivation. I've got to make this decision to show my loyalty so that I so that I stay. Right. So the, the, and- the fear of rejection <laughs> is also there the whole time. So it's funny as I try to like explore the themes of these movies, I want to be crystal clear. This guy is not likable at all. At he, all. You do, you do not root <laughs> for him. You root for Larry, Jerry Lundergaard more than you root for this guy. Like he just, um, yes, there's yeah. nothing to root for. in Leonardo DiCaprio's character and his performance, like he's just not even scummy. He's just like kind of sad and pathetic and aimless. And so, again, like to me, I was like, what's caught like I'm trying to like look under the hood and say, what's causing this to happen? And my read on it was fear. But I think the greed's there. I think all that sort of thing. But I don't think like I think De Niro's character, on the other hand, is greed. I think he is just like, I'm going to get everything I can. I'm going to control it all and I'm going to drain this thing. And I want greed. I want power. He's kind of the more classic villain who's just like trying to get all those different things but dicaprio is just like kind of a literally a pawn like he's standing on a chessboard being spanked you know he's literally a pawn in this sort of story so you talked about him being sort of controlled by fear and i would say that yeah his defining characteristic is the fact that he is a coward um and i think that that word has a much more loaded implication than just sort of the generalized idea of being controlled by fear. I think a lot of times in movies we like are used to like someone makes a threat, right? Like the mob boss comes in and they say like, if you do this, I'm going to like break the knees of everyone in your family. And so someone's like, I'm afraid now, right? So the idea of like the spanking scene, right? Is like, that was a physical threat. And I, I don't get the impression that that moment was what controlled him for the rest of the movie. But the fact that he is, he is a coward as like an entire person and so someone says something to him that he might not fully agree with, 
But instead of rejecting that person, he's going to say yes in order to not make that person angry or not disappoint that person. The idea of being a coward in relationships, in in life, like in almost every decision he makes, it feels cowardly. Like when he's with the police, right? Like he he does not stand up like for himself. He just kind of functions as like a pushover is too too weak of a word. But like through the through the movie, he is generally spineless. And absolutely not just for fear of physical harm, but fear of kind of everything without being neurotic. He is in control and like a functioning human, right? He's he's not like a classic movie scared coward person. He's in control, but he's just weak and spineless and you don't ever root for him from the jump. Yeah, I, th- I think he, coward is a great word. And I think, yeah, he's being controlled by again, I, there is the angel who's Molly and the devil who's De Niro. And he's just kind of a wishbone being controlled by those two sort of things. He's got some evil inside of him and he just completely falls over to that. But there's not like this maniacal plan. There's not this creativity. It's just like, he just kind of wants to be liked and not get in trouble. And, you know, um, yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that kind of selfish is I want everything to be easy and good. And so I'm going to take the easiest road in each of these instances. I'm right. going to do the easy thing. Um, so you said a second ago that you felt like Robert De Niro was a little bit more classic villain, a little bit more, can, you know, like power and greed or sort of his motivators. I think he's made like it's, it's a tie between him and. Uh, Lily Gladstone for b- being sort of the most meaningful character to me. But to me, I, w- I think I was going to pick him when I walked out of the theater as being the most meaningful because I think he gives one of the most complicated and nuanced and interesting villain performances I've seen in an incredibly long time. Yeah. I think there are really interesting villains that like we talk about, like your classic like Darth Vader's or like Thanos is really interesting. There's like these like evil people that like are a little bit larger than life, but really fun and interesting. This is the most realistic sociopath I think I've seen put to screen. Correct. It is Robert De Niro. It can be a big actor, right? Like you talking to me, right? Like you, like you, you think of like De Niro, like peak De Niro, and he's a big bombastic kind of bravado actor. And this is so con- again, controlled and quiet and that's the only really specific scene we've mentioned right now is the Masonic spanking scene. And that is completely divergent from almost the rest of the movie. He is just this like quiet, controlled manipulator. And he'll talk about family and how important it is in one breath. And then in the next breath, he'll just like very calmly talk about how the Native Americans or he calls them something far worse, um, like just don't deserve to own anything and how we should probably just murder them. And that's just the way it is. And he just moves on like it's it's so believable as like this person doesn't even think what they're doing is wrong. He believes the entire community loves him and he wants to kill most of them. And that sounds like a mustache twirling cartoon villain. And it's not. It's so believable and so real and so almost normal. Like you expect this guy could live next door to you. And to me that like I was constantly leaned in thinking about who is this person because he's he's so fascinating, which also goes to the writing like of him. Yeah. When I said he's more classical evil, I'm just saying his (laughs) everything that he's doing is there's no nuance there of like, is he good or evil? It's like this guy's pure evil. But his reasoning why he doesn't see himself as a villain and, no. and his, his thought process is totally understandable from the 1920s world where he says the Osage Indians are dying out. It's going to happen one way or the other. They don't understand how to fit in our world. So we need to take all their money and run things because they're going to lose it all anyway. It's going to happen. And he gives the like kind of speaks these things in reality, which we know are true. But they should not be true where we talk about being uncomfortable and there's such right. an injustice of like, how did this happen? How did people let this happen? Right. And even there's a scene where they're all sitting around at like, I forget where it is. It's like a their meeting hall or something like that. But they're they're like, we're trying to make sense of your world. Like they even say that, like, we try to follow your rules. We try to do all your stuff and we got this money. But now 
like what's so interesting with all of them is that the, and they go into it a little bit in the movie, but much more so in the book that like they had money, but they couldn't even control their own funds. Did you get that right. from the movie? Yeah, I mean, there was like certain people, I forget what the word they had, but certain people were like trustworthy and could like take their own money out. And other people were like had to have like a uh, basically like a conservatorship yeah. um, is basically what it what it was. So you had to have your uh, like guardian present when you withdrew your money, even though it was your money. Um, and it seemed like a lot of them, I forget what the what the terminology it's it's not um, it's not trustworthy. It's it's uh like capable or incapable or yeah. uh, what I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting at the moment, but so, so many of them, like if you were a woman, you were considered to like basically not have control over your own money, even though it was yours. It wasn't whoever was taking it out or your like guardian who could approve it. It wasn't their money. It was still yours, but you had to have someone else's approval to get it. And there was a lot of men who, for whatever reason, they could deem like unfit. Uh, and it seemed like a lot of them, you know, were that way. Very few of them. And it was just a way of controlling it in a legal sense i guess right and it was for their own safety is what the reasoning was but the reality was like they were cutting some off the top they weren't giving them enough they weren't letting them control it they still didn't have any of their own power and so it was just so controlled and so evil but to de niro's thinking it was like no that's just the way it is that's the way of the world and so yeah he's just such a force of like what i mean he represented what was the line of thinking and rationale that made all of these injustices possible. And he was the right. embodiment of that. Um, and I agreed. I agree. It is. He's the guy who's taking public pictures. He's the guy who's at the dance. He's the guy who kind of gets the politeness and the society and how things should go. But he's also yeah. the guy who's very much like, okay, shoot him in the back of the head, not the front of the head. Who's trying to de devise like different ways of like, okay, this is how murder is acceptable. And this is how murder is not acceptable. And right. there's this very simple morality to it for him. And the thing, the thing that made him so fascinating to me, and to me is one of the reasons to go watch this movie. If you decided to not watch this movie and jump into the spoiler section, here's a pitch to go watch this movie. Is, is his rationale, I think we're used to seeing characters that are truly evil behind the scenes and then behave like heroes in front of the scenes. And they're doing it as an act. Right. They're doing it to put on a good face to like fool people and manipulate people. I truly believe in the way that De Niro was playing this character that his public persona of being basically King Hale. Right. He, he wasn't like the mayor of the town, but he was like the town benefactor. He had his right. own ranch and money and like provided dance schools and like like funded things. And like I don't get the impression to me that that was a front of his personality. He truly no. believed that he was loved. He truly did love taking care of the community. He wanted all of those things when he would sit down with the Indians at their or the, you know, uh, American Indians and uh, the the Osage people at their like tribal meetings. I don't think he was putting on a face. He was there and like was listening to what they wanted and what they needed and wanted to be a part of that. And then when certain moments happened, he needed to murder most of them in order to, like, make sure that he had money to continue doing what him and his family needed to do. But, like, not neither of those things were fake to him. They were both real, and he held them both in his head at the same time as non-competing ideas. And that was so fascinating for me to watch because I was, like, it, it reminded me of, like, like, again, like, people you meet in real life that you're, like, really good friends with, and then they'll say something horrifying, and you're, like, how do you hold that opinion right. when the rest of your life is wonderful? <laughs> right. He's almost like a cattle farmer who's, like, oh, I take care of cattle, and I feed them, and I give them a name, and then when it's yeah. time for me, I take them one of them out. And that's exactly. almost the way that he looks at them, and you're, like, and to him, again— Part of the reason I go back to the very nature of human nature is that's what Scorsese is wrestling with is like, what made this atrocity possible or continues mm -hmm. to make these atrocities possible? What is yeah. it in us that makes us so dark and sinful? And definitely, if you look at his filmography, he is like, there is darkness in us. There is sin and he is wrestling with it. But, you know, what's interesting about him is Scorsese almost became a priest. You know, that was his original sort of he was studying he was going to be a priest it was his highest calling and so he believes in salvation as well and he's wrestling with is salvation even possible are we too far gone are we too broken and that's a lot of what this movie is 
Yeah, I mean, because ultimately, like I said, Leonardo DiCaprio, while I think he is not at all the most interesting person in the movie, it, it the 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 arc of the journey is basically can he find his own salvation? And the answer is sort of right. Like, no. Um, so let's let's talk about two two or an interesting scene, I think. And I think it's it's the cap on Lily Gladstone's character, whose name is Molly Burkhart. Yep. Um, it's after. Like um, Ernest Leo's character is like um, in jail and has been arrested and is flip flopped and whether or not he's testifying against um, King or not. And she goes in and basically asks him to tell her the truth about something. I don't even remember what it was. Do you remember what it was? Uh, was it about the diabetes, about the insulin? Yes. Yes. It's about the insulin. So he's been like poisoning her while he is also in love with her, but he's so much of a coward that like he knows he's poisoning her, but because, uh, Robert Nero's character and the doctors gave him plausible deniability to himself, right? Not to other people, just to himself of, oh, you're just slowing her down to help her out. He knows that's a lie, but is doing it anyway because he's like choosing to lie to himself because he's such a coward. Any rate, um, and end of towards the end, end of the movie, she she basically asks, like, what were you poisoning me with? Right. Like, I know you're poisoning me. Right. And he and she's almost willing to forgive the insane amount of crimes that he has committed or helped in committing, including murder of a lot of her family. Yep. Right. You can tell that she, like, does love him. Right. It's this, it's a very weird relationship that they have. Um, and she basically just asks him to tell the truth and he, you know, makes up this whole lie because it's the easier thing to do. It's the more cowardly thing to do. He's not going to admit it because that would be harder. And she just quietly stands up and walks out of the room. And that's the last time he ever sees her. And it's this it's the like most impactful, like punch in the face moment. And she doesn't eat. She just leaves. And it's it's like you're like cheering so hard for her when she does that. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, speaking as a priest, this is a moment in the confession, Ruth. This is the moment yeah. where it's like, just me, you, and God. There's no one else. I just need you to tell me the truth. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if this is a great Leo performance. I think it's not, actually. Mm -hmm. But um, it's fine. But I think that scene, he's really, really good. Um, of, like, he's trying to deny it, but everything on his face wants to scream the truth. It's just yeah. his words his again cowardly is the right word mm -hmm. won't let him speak the truth and so his face is yeah. saying yes i did i'm sorry you don't understand has all these excuses and that sort of stuff but his words just say no and his face right. tells her everything it needs and she again she's stone cold there's very very little emotion but you see every single thought that she has yeah. we've been having it as well of like this guy is toxic he is death i have to leave right now and so it's this weird moment of salvation and not salvation because he testifies against Robert De Niro, right? Again, if you're still here in spoiler territory, this is the end of the movie, baby. So he, he testifies against De Niro. De Niro gets sent to prison for, you know, being the king conspirator and murdering a lot of people. Um, and Leo testifies against him, which is sort of like his hero arc, right? He finally gains a backbone to stand up to the guy who's been largely manipulating him for most of the movie even though he sucks to begin with. So, you know, you don't feel bad for him. <laughs> yeah. um, so like that's his redemption. And then in the next scene, that's the next scene is her walking in, basically saying like, just tell me the truth. Yeah, it's the professional scene and he can't do it. And so then she leaves him. And so he's somewhat redeemed because he stood up against Robert De Niro, but also damned because she leaves him. And he's not he's not redeemed at all, though. It's too little too late. The most heartbreaking scene in the movie probably is when the FBI agent, when Jesse Plemons comes in and says, your child is dead. I don't even know which one. And he has to like figure out which child it is. And he just yeah. crumples down on the ground and cries and cries. And that's what gives him the strength of like, okay, this has gone too far. But again, it was just right. like, it's too little too late. Right. So it's right. It's, it's redemption that isn't right. Like the, the end of this hero arc should be him testifying. Like that should be his hero moment. Right. Yep. So in 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 the classical story sense, I guess is, is what I'm saying. Right. Is like 
he like he has that whole scene where he like stands up to De Niro and De Niro is doing all the manipulative tactics like he even says I love you at one point which was like just stone cold that was a performance right yep. but like you see him dropping all the lines and none of them work right so it's this moment where it feels like he has a backbone right and he and he does enough to go testify but it's not a, it's not a character change like he doesn't right cuz then in 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 the next scene he still continues to lie to his wife about trying to kill her and so it's it, at the end, it's like this status quo, which to me is is goes to the, my point about Scorsese. You know, honestly, I think he his opinion about humanity is is that we are largely controlled by our demons. Uh, I think he shows that in a lot of his filmography. Um, but we want redemption, but we it is very, 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 very hard to get there. OK, I want to get to your most meaningful scene. <laughs> um yeah yeah let's um um my most meaningful scene before we get to my most meaningful scene you talked about leo's performance for a second can we talk about leo for just a second before we get off of characters yeah Yeah. okay so watching the movie which there was a lot of time to watch the movie and have thoughts because there's a lot of it um i was thinking like leo again leo is the protagonist and is somehow the least interesting character um, I think Leo is in a weird period of his career where I think he wants to kind of be De Niro. He wants to go from being the leading man to being this older character actor. He knows that he's not the like he's like, you know, 50 now. So he, he's 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 no longer the like heroic leading man type. He's not going to be the guy in Inception anymore. Right. Yep. Or fill in any other cool Leo leading man performance. Um, and so he's I feel like he's trying to take these character roles like we talked about in the uh, Don't Look Up uh, episode. He's this like weird schlubby professor and he's kind of doing this weird cowardly, cowardly schlubby thing in this movie, too. And there's something about it being Leo that I just don't buy it because it's him. Like this yeah. idea that he's the idea that his whole character is that he is a coward and easy to be to manipulate and people talk to him about like sort of like his condition or the way that he is as though he's like somewhat simple or like not super smart, right? That he's a little bit kind of, you know, like a lower intelligent human being. There's something about the fact that like this is leading man Leonardo DiCaprio that like I don't buy this. I'm I'm not on board with the fact that you're like kind of an idiot coward. Like and and so to me that was like a hurdle I was facing the whole movie even though I think he's doing a pretty good job and trying his best and not giving a bad performance. I think he's giving a good performance, but I think he's somehow stunted by himself. It does, does that make sense? It does. Um, it's weird. I thought he worked and don't look up for me because there was this like sweetness to this character that he ta- tapped into. It was almost like the sweetness from Jack in Titanic where he's just like, mm-hmm. Okay, I'm out of my depth, but I'm still trying to be here. And there was just this like it was so different for him that it was like this sweetness that it like worked for me. I definitely agree with everything that you're saying in this film right here where I was like, he's leading man. He's strong. He's powerful. He was so quiet for the first hour and a half of the movie. There was no like classic Leo scenes, which I don't need. But I was like, it almost seemed like a waste of him. It was just like. He's here when like any character actor could have done like John C. Riley could have done it just as well or, you know, whatever else where it was like, why do we need? Oh, John C. Riley in this role would have been fascinating. Yeah. Like that, 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 that like sort of pitiful guy that's just trying, you know, and, you know, m- maybe and, and that to me gives this a little bit of a disservice because he does a good, a pretty darn good job considering that his type his like bread and butter is leading man charisma so the fact that he was able to do what he did to me is like that's really impressive but i don't think the movie's better for it in a way but i would say like don't look up and once upon a time in hollywood which we've never talked about but i love leo's performance in that i think it's incredible i think it's one of the best of his career and it is more of a like washed up not cool guy you know but it like you could see he used to be someone in the past and so Again, it leans on Leo magic where it was like, hey, he used to right. be this it's, and it's now he doesn't have it strength. anymore. Yeah, I think that's playing to his strength is he used to be a leading man, which is like who he is. So you look at it and you're reading Leo into the character yep. the whole time. Like if we want to talk about non-leading man Leo, I feel like Django Unchained where he's like charismatic and horrible. 
I buy that all day 100%. long because he's still yeah. charismatic. The fact that he was like not charismatic and like, again, like dumb. I was like, I, it's very difficult for me to get on board with this premise. Um, and, and maybe that that's my own prejudice um, with just him no, uh, and his and his body of work. But I did find it occasionally pulling me out of the movie. It did take me out of the movie. I a couple times I was like, "Why is Leo? Why did he want this part? Like, other than yeah. the fact that Scorsese directed it, like, why did he take it?" Um, even Jesse Plemons as Leo's character, I almost think would have been better. Just, if, this is if a he very Jesse Plemons role. If you would have like, flipped those two guys, it would have made more sense because it's like, yeah, Jesse yeah. Plemons, I can believe is like this coward can't quite stand up, and Leo, I can believe is like the cool lawman who is coming into town. Which, by the way. The book of this movie is much more so a procedural. It's much more mm -hmm. so like the F it's the making of the FBI. It's the FBI are coming in. They're uncovering these murders. It's not clear who did it. Like in this movie, it's very much like this is not a whodunit. We're no. going to tell you very early on who did it. Here we go. <laughs> right. And you're going to spend three Robert and hours like, hey, we should kill these people. You want to yep. marry them and kill them off and take their money? Like he yep. doesn't say it that outright, but that's what the conversation pretty is. much. Yeah. And the. The, in the book, it's like, okay, these murders are happening. FBI is coming in. It's much more sort of procedural. And so the original draft was written much more like the book. And then it was like, no, 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 no. We need to like actually tell this from a different perspective. And that's why Scorsese and uh, I think it was Eric Roth. Or Eric, Eric Roth. Yeah, Eric, Eric Roth. Roth who, yeah. Did, who did the rewrites on it. Um, okay. Yeah. Back to, back right, to so my so question. Let's talk about the ending. Let's talk about the yeah. Yeah. yeah, most meaningful th scene to me. That kind of blows the cap off of this after like the movie is done. You've watched the whole movie. It's over. And they do the epilogue at the end of the movie, which normally would be like, you know, uh, they would do the thing where they have like l the little words over the screen where it's like, you know, so and so went on to serve eight years in Leavenworth prison. So and so, right. uh, you know, uh, got remarried and um, lived the ripe old age of whatever, whatever, and had three children. Right. Like th that that sort of classic epilogue. Look. But the way they go about it here is they start a voiceover and then it shifts out of the movie into a like 1940s, 1950s. Yeah, 1940s. Like pre-TVs. Yeah, pre-TV. Yeah, exactly. So 1940s radio drama with that's like brought to you by Lucky Strike Cigarettes. Um where they are like narrating the end of the story as though you'd been listening to it as a radio drama for the last three and a half hours. Um, this is never set up earlier in the movie. This is this is it's sort of completely out of left field. But the way they bring you into it is smooth enough that it works and you're not thrown off like you stay engaged with this as an epilogue, which I thought was fabulous. Um, but as they're telling what happens to all of these characters, the fact that Molly dies shortly afterwards, within the next 10 years of diabetes, hopefully naturally, they don't really tell you um, after being remarried to someone else who very much sounds like a white man. Um, they tell you uh, what happens to Leo's character, what happens to Robert De Niro's character. He gets out of prison, is you know on parole, um, all that kind of stuff, but it's done as a radio play. And if you're listening to this, you've already seen it. So you don't need me to talk you through it in this level of detail, but they have all of like people stepping in and doing the voices and doing sort of like character -y voices and people doing the, like the little sound effects, right? Like the little Foley people that are doing like the little, like, or like the writing on the keyboard or the scratching on a paper. And it's, it's very campy. Um, and it sets the whole thing up as basically like, the, the the most sort of in your face version of you've just been listening to a story about murder for your own entertainment right uh, um and it takes and it makes it to me it made me as a viewer like immediately look at myself and you've been so engaged in this real story about real people and feeling so bad for them and so personally engaged with the horror of what was happening to these these people and then you immediately realize that you paid 1050 to sit down in a movie and be entertained and you're being entertained by their murder right and 
like you just stare at yourself for the last three minutes of the movie. And then the very final like guy on a microphone who's like doing the final bit of the epilogue in this radio drama is Martin Scorsese. And it's like he knows it. It's he's wrestling with that same exact idea that these real life American Indians who went through all of this, he is now like he's trying to be respectful to them, but also he's in the middle of making their horror entertainment. And it's it's so meta and yet so assaulting in a wonderfully like ethical turn the microscope on yourself kind of way it, it, it completely shifted the meaning of the movie for me yeah i was about to say that's your meaning of the movie monologue bro like you are so spot on of like what that is and what that's about because we talked earlier in this podcast about like oh this doesn't feel like a martin scorsese movie like there's not as many rollicking things the murders aren't as cool as we thought they would like we even said there's not a lot of murders there actually are there's a lot of deaths like on there's screen. so much murder in this movie, but not like Scorsese murder. It's but like it's not, quiet Coen Brothers murder. <laughs> right. But it's not visceral. It's not big explosions. It's just kind of that. Right. And no, so I one, think but. I think it's a reflection of like, well, even that big explosion happens off screen. Like, off screen. Yeah, you're, you know, right. you're it, right. And so it's we don't even get to see the big bomb. It's just kind of like we're seeing a window get blown out. And so anyway, everything. Yeah, man, it's just like. <laughs> he is essentially saying, what have I been doing my whole career? Like, this is what I got from it. Like, mm-hmm. like by making these things and I have to make a movie about this tragedy. Like, that's what I do. That's my art. That's my craft. But my yeah. art and craft is very much pulling strings to like, tell the story that I want to do. And so he's acknowledging that he's been pulling strings, telling the story he wants to do. And getting extra layer of meta, this radio drama is put on by the FBI. So the FBI is now packaging up what this what these murders are supposed to be and what the crime and what the case is. Mm, and so it's yeah, also like that. this is what our government is telling us about what this story is. So there's so many layers to it. Like that's why I'm really like I feel like I need to see this movie three or four more times and I may have different takes. But like do you, there's do you have that a, there's a lot in your life? I don't. <laughs> That's why I'm just, okay, I got to go. I got to jump on a podca- podcast. Otherwise, it's going to be 10 years later, and I'm like, okay, I'm finally ready to talk about this movie. Um, but it's worth thinking about. It's worth wrestling through of like, okay, what is this? What's saying? And again, he's really cogn- conscious of like, I'm pulling these levers, but also these are the other levers that have been pulled because we would never know about these murders. We would never know about this story if it wasn't for someone like him and you know, the book as well, that's like, okay, we're going to present this for you in some sort of way. Even though as Americans, we should be knowing these stories. We should be horrified by them. We should be repenting about them. We should be like, my God, what have we done? But instead we're like complaining that like, I'm kind of busy. I don't have enough time to sit down and think about the darkest part of our history. Right. And it, it like recontextualizes this thing that I feel like as a viewer, I felt like like emotionally riveted with like the horror and like completely basically on the side of the Osage people, right? I I identified with them in the movie. I was rooting for them every time they got upper handed by the wolves in their town. But basically I was I was horrified by it. And like I was emotionally engaged with them. I was identifying with them the whole movie. And then, yeah, that ending basically takes me out of it and says, like, no, like, you're not them. Like, you don't get to identify with them. The person you are is the person sitting in the movie theater who just paid money. And I didn't buy any popcorn, but, you know, ostensibly is eating popcorn to this story. That's who you are. So check yourself for a second before you feel the level of righteousness because you emotionally identified with um, Molly this entire movie. Who are you actually? And you might be the guy listening to the, you know, the radio play with a like it's it's yeah, it's a whole nother level of that kind of emotional investigation, I guess. Well, in his last line in the movie, I love, 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 because it says how these how we craft these stories matter deeply. And the last line in the movie is he gets out there and he reads Molly's obituary. And the very last thing he says is there was no mention of the murders. Yes. So he's saying. 
she was there and then this, all this horrible stuff that that was such a part of a story was just kind of buried and moved on and that's kind yeah. of what we've done as people as we've <laughs> these horrible things have happened but we bury them and we move on Right. And like like you said, like without this movie, we don't know about this. And it's important. We should know about that. It should be taught in school. It should like we should know that these kind of things occurred and occurred recently. Right. Not just like in the, you know, 1700s when the call, you know, when we first colonized America, like horrible things are still happening as recently as very recently. Um, and, uh, so it is important that this movie exists and we should watch it and we should understand this, right? Like all that is true, but then, so it's, it's, it's not bad, right? It's this weird thing. Like I'm not bad for being the guy in the movie theater watching it. It's good that I am, but also like, it, like it's, it's those two things being true at the same time and having to think about that and wrestle with it is not something you normally walk out of a movie theater having to experience or feeling, uh, a little uncomfortable, uh, but in the best kind of way. So are you higher on, than a seven on it now after talking about it? Have you, has your number jumped up at all? <laughs> um, I think, I think it's, 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 it's a wonderful movie. Um, I, I think I'm still going to put it at like a seven. Like, I think, I think it's as far as meaning of the movie movies go, it's like a 9.5. Like, <laughs> as, as far as movies that make this podcast great, um, it's, it's all the way up there. It's a movie that's packed with meaning and deserves to be really thought about and wrestled with um for sure yeah and and for me like i said like getting to wrestle through these ideas of like okay what was that ending who was the good person what do we make of that you know there's so many different things yeah. in it um that is just there and i think it's important that like this is a movie even though it's three and a half hours i would actually recommend watch it all at once it's not oh, episodic yes. It's not like, okay, I'm going to watch the first hour and then I'm going to turn. Like, you'll miss the emotional weight of it if you don't sit down and kind of make yourself go through the full journey as much yeah. as possible. That's what I'd recommend. So we don't have a ton of time, but I left this movie thinking this would have been a really good four-part miniseries. I felt like it was episodic. I felt like there's four very clear chapters in this movie. <laughs> there's like the setup. There's the like middle of his life where he's doing all of the crimes. There's the FBI investigation. And then there's the court trial at the end. To me, it was very, it was four very clear hours that I thought would have made a really great miniseries. It also made a really good movie. But um, that, you know, that, that three and a half hours in this day and age, more people might consume it if it was a four part episodic miniseries. You are an evil, evil man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just think like <laughs> I think that's true. I think it's so natural, and I think it would be like, oh, it's a nice okay episode, episode one, episode two, episode three versus like I want to take you on this full like kind of like sin journey redemption tour, and that's what this movie is. It is yeah. it's different than a Taylor Sheridan. Hey, this is four episodes of Yellowstone or something like that. It's like no, you're gonna. This is a journey that has to be like lived out and gone through and that builds one thing builds on another until this yeah. ultimate climax where it, I don't think that very last scene works nearly as powerfully if we've true. been doing it episode by episode. You know, what I, mean? I think some of the fabric true. of what this yeah. thing is like, would it mm -hmm. be cleaner? Yes. Would it be more consumed as for episode? Yes. Would you kind of unravel the thread of the soul of what this is? If you do that? Yeah, I think you would. <laughs> Okay. All right. Yeah, no, I think you're right about the ending and the the amazing like the amazing punch that final scene would not work in a miniseries, you're right? Yeah. All right. All right. I'm, okay. I'm a huge fan of the miniseries though, so I don't know if I fully, fully agree, but um you're probably right. I like miniseries. I think they have their place, but I think this guy making this is special and um I'm glad you listened to this episode, and I hope you've either seen this and share your thoughts, or you go check it out. Until then, we will see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie.